My name is Joe Capizzi. I'm the executive director of the Institute of Human Ecology. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. It's my pleasure to welcome you here on behalf of us and also of the Catholic Information Center. We're, we're happy and proud to be working with them again. We've worked uh, quite a bit together. Uh, Mitch Borsma, who's put together the Leonine Forum, is a former student of mine, so our relationship goes back quite a bit. Uh, and it's a thrill of ours to be able to work and bring some of the work that we're doing down uh, up in DC, up in Catholic University, down here into the city. Today we're going to have a discussion between uh, these two wonderful speakers to my right. Um, Sam Goldman is a professor of politics at George Washington University, and Ramesh Panuro is a writer with National Review, among other places. Both of them are prolific uh, contributors to the ongoing conversation that we're seeing uh, in our culture around the question that provokes our conversation tonight, the emergence of nationalism. We at the Institute for Human Ecology have a stake in this. What we do at the Institute is try to focus on the conditions that conduce to human flourishing. We study them, we bring together faculty from across the university and across the country who work on those kinds of uh, issues. We try to advance those conditions in the culture as much as possible. And one of the ways we do this is to, is to entertain conversations across the aisle with people who disagree with us. You've probably seen some of the things that we've done uh, in the recent past. We like to have conversation among people who typically disagree with each other and to host conversation that is not being hosted by other places. Uh, tonight, our goal is to entertain a conversation around this subject. I think it's a tricky subject. It's one that's not typically handled well. People sort of line up on one side or the other and identify themselves as nationalist or not um, with very little historical uh, depth, very little consideration, perhaps, of the consequences of taking this or that side of the position. So tonight, I hope what we're going to get out of this is a sort of you know, another step forward in our understanding of the issue and some insight into what might be at stake. Uh, the format is relatively straightforward. Each of um, the gentlemen to my right will speak for 10 minutes. After their 10 minutes is up, the three of us will have kind of a little intra-panel conversation. I will ask no more than two questions of them. I want you guys to be involved in this conversation as well. Once their 10 minutes is up and once our conversation uh, among ourselves is done, then we will open up for questions from you. There will be, I believe, microphones or a microphone that will be circulated. So if you have a question, raise your hand and we will come and get you and call, you know, give you an opportunity to, to ask a question. As always, remember, this is an opportunity to make a question to the panelists, not a speech, okay? So if I can encourage you to have a nice, concise question for them that gets to its point relatively quickly, they'll take the force of the point, right, without you having to provide a speech that makes it for them. Okay, so just a nice straight question, and then they'll, they'll answer, okay? Everybody understand? How we're, thank you very, again, thank you very much. Um, and Sam, I believe you're up first. Thanks, Joe, and thanks to you uh, for your attention. So the question we've been asked to discuss is whether nationalism is a virtue or a vice. And in order to begin to answer that question, uh, it's necessary, of course, to say something about what nationalism is. Now, that's a topic that could be the subject of a whole debate in itself, and uh, we'll see whether Ramesh and I understand the term in the same way. Um, but what I want to propose is that nationalism is most helpfully defined not as an ideology or political theory, but rather as a style of politics informed by three basic assumptions. 
First, that the world is divided into peoples. Second, that those peoples are defined by objective characteristics, such as language or religion or common descent. And third, that the people should be the focus of political loyalty, allegiance, or sovereignty. And that's really the key assumption. Now, all of these assumptions have a long history and in some ways extend back to the great sources of Western civilization, the Hebrew Bible, and the Greek philosophical tradition. Uh, But they became widely accepted only relatively recently, um, sometime between about 1700 and about 1900, so in the last uh, one to three centuries. Now, why did that happen? Briefly, um, the Reformation played a role, and in particular, uh, the rediscovery of the Hebrew Bible as a source of political guidance. So did the democratic theories of sovereignty, which were adopted and popularized by the French and American revolutions. Um, And finally, technological changes um, that encouraged communication and travel uh, on a broader scale. Uh, First, the printing press and later railroads. All of these contributed to one degree or another. Um, But was this a good or a bad thing? the emergence of a mass politics based on these assumptions. I think the record is mixed. Uh, On the one hand, the emergence of nationalism helped destroy a pluralistic, aristocratic civilization of extraordinary beauty and accomplishment. And I should think that that destruction would be a matter of particular interest to Catholics. On the other hand, nationalism promoted the establishment of constitutional governments that provided a much greater degree of personal freedom and dignity to many more people that had enjoyed those goods in the past. And it's nationalism in this sense, or in this connection, uh, that it's praised by great liberal theorists like John Stuart Mill. But later in the 19th century, nationalism came into tension with some of these accomplishments. Increasingly, the people, often narrowly defined, was pitted against constitutional institutions and guarantees of individual rights that were thought to constrain it from achieving its destiny. And this is the semi-mystical populist strand of nationalism that critics often have in mind when they denounce it. Now, I am among those critics. I I have very little difficulty pronouncing uh, this brand of nationalism vicious. Um, Not all expressions of populist nationalism were equally bad, but they did have tendencies toward violence, toward repression of dissent and pluralism. Um, And also, and this may seem a petty point, but I think is not insignificant, to utter vulgarity, extraordinary vulgarity in the arts and culture. Um, But you're not here entirely for a history lesson, although if it turns out that you are, you can ask questions on these topics, and I'm happy to elaborate. Um, The real issue, of course, is to do with nationalism today, not as it might have been in the 19th or early 20th century. So which is it, a virtue or a vice? My fear, um, which stays with me on most days, although not all days, Um, is that the present revival of nationalism stands in this 
populist and illiberal tradition. It tends to be exclusive, crude, and often cruel, sometimes intentionally so. At a certain degree of abstraction, it's not difficult to describe a nationalism that would avoid these vices. But in practice, nationalism for us today seems to pit uh, so-called real Americans, or implicitly white, native-born, Christian, and provincial, against what must be therefore described as fake America, which is everybody else. Um, And I I do confess a personal interest here because I belong to fake America and I resent the implication that I and many others who share some of my background um, and characteristics don't belong to this country. Now, that's not to say that there aren't legitimate grievances behind the present revival of nationalism. Um, And these might include uh, the indifference of major political institutions, um, social disorder and economic decline, um, and the downright snobbery uh, of the social and cultural elite. But in trying to address these grievances, I think that it's important that we who love our country ensure that the cure is not worse than the disease. And that's the fear that I can't escape um, regarding at least the present nationalist revival. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I guess it's my job to defend uh, cruelty, (laughs) vulgarity, uh, and so forth. Um, Let me first thank our hosts. Um, uh, Human ecology is one of my favorite kinds of ecology. And uh, I always enjoy being here. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's uh, actually a, a treat, uh, particularly this week, to uh, be invited to uh, lift my gaze up from day-to-day politics a little bit. And I'm particularly impressed um, that Professor Goldman was able to um, make all those remarks about nationalism um, without ever, I believe, uttering the syllable Trump. Um, I can't promise that I'm going to follow that example. Um, I don't know whether we're going to have a sort of titanic clash here because I reject some of the same things um, that um, that Professor Goldman rejects. Uh, he suggested that different people mean different things by nationalism. I think that's very true, and one of the reasons we tend to have unproductive discussions of it is precisely because of the plasticity of the term. So people who agree on all the underlying uh, beliefs might disagree uh, or think they disagree because they're using the term in different ways. So George Orwell's famous notes on nationalism, I think, has had a really unhelpful effect on the conversation about nationalism uh, because Orwell f- defines nationalism in a f- actually sort of idiosyncratic way. Um, He defines it really as a kind of power worship, a kind of blind loyalty to a cause or a group or an ideology that does not admit that that movement, cause, person, etc. can have any flaws. Uh, And he suggests that there are uh, kinds of Catholicism that he has in mind when he's talking about nationalism. Um, Stalinism, which is, of course, an attempt to create a universal ideology that's going to govern everybody in the world, 
uh, and not, uh, at least in theory, make distinctions based on race and ethnicity, uh, and is, wants to overthrow every government in the world at the time that, uh, but one, uh, at the time that he was writing. That, too, is a kind of nationalism. Uh, I think that if you read that essay and just sort of think of it as a study in the, the, the evils to which certain kinds of ideology and power worship uh, lend themselves, uh, you can gain a lot from it, but it's not actually particularly helpful when you're thinking in terms of what most people mean by the word nationalism. So I want to say a little bit, of course, about what kind of nationalism I think is worth defending, what kind I think isn't worth defending, and why I think it's important to do both of those things, that is, to, to, to defend the right kind of nationalism and, re and reject the wrong kind. Uh, I should also note, being a, uh, having been at National Review for about a quarter century now, um, Bill Buckley was another person. He's, I've never been able to track down the quote, but he is said to have said that he didn't have a nationalist bone in his body. Uh, and I think he was thinking of a kind of uh, uh, continuum uh, with patriotism on one end and nationalism on another, patriotism being a kind of healthy or healthful love of country and nationalism being rooted in the same emotions but having, having taken it to uh, an unwise, excessive degree at the expense of other goods, um, what one might think of as jingoism or collectivism or chauvinism. Uh, well, what I have in mind when I'm talking about nationalism, the kind of nationalism that I, I think is worth defending, is a politics that places an emphasis on the national interest, on uh, national cohesion, national sovereignty, and national solidarity. Um, in the United States, that kind of nationalism, American nationalism, has a distinct ideological component. It is a American nationalism is more ideological than the nationalism of most other countries, um, but I don't believe that that nationalism is reducible to its intellectual content. So uh, one sometimes hears, uh, in fact, just the other day, I don't know if it's a recent quote, but I just happened to run across a quote from Condoleezza Rice in which she was saying that um, America is more than a nation, it's an idea. Uh, and I tend to think it's rather the other way around. America's more than an idea, it's a nation. Um, it's a nation that includes an idea, uh, but just because you share those ideas, you believe in self-government, you believe in individual rights, the equality of people before the law, that doesn't make you an American. You can be a Frenchman and believe in those things, although you are less likely to. Um, and you can be a radical American um, who rejects one or more of those bedrock American principles and still be an American, uh, although the fact that we have an ideological component to our nationhood helps explain why we periodically uh, hunt one another for signs of un-Americanism and anti-Americanism. Uh, believing that national interest, national cohesion, et cetera, that those things are important um, is only a, a sort of a first step uh, in a defensible politics, uh, no particular policy sort of simply and directly flows uh, from that premise. So the fact that we should have a trade policy uh, or the view that we should have a trade policy in the American interest, which I believe, uh, does not necessarily mean that we should have a, a hard protectionist policy. In fact, I think that a, a wise understanding of American interests would not uh, lead to such a policy. Um, but it is, I think, the, the first step that we have to ask. 
uh, will it promote the interests of the nation as a whole? The um, the reason I think it's worth def well, there's the, basically two reasons I think it's it's worth defending this version of nationalism. Um, the first is that it's threatened, or at least there are people and there are elements in our politics that don't share those views. Um, I'd say that there is it's a it's a distinct minority of Americans who say that we should think of ourselves as citizens of the world before we think of ourselves as Americans. But it is certainly possible to hold that point of view. You can be an intelligent person of goodwill and hold that view. You can even be a patriot in the sense of somebody who loves the United States and loves Americans. You can even be somebody who has fought in wars to defend the United States while believing that we should have uh, a global government, say, um, or that we need to pool our sovereignty um, with other countries because the nation state is outdated. Um, I think that those are wrong-headed ideas that deserve to be opposed, and uh, one way of one reasonable way of describing that difference is that I'm a nationalist opposed to globalism. Uh, I, on the question of immigration, uh, I think it is very often uh, overlooked in our discussions um, that uh, while uh, there are a great many considerations that should go into the setting of it, um, we need to look first and foremost for the welfare of people who are already here. Um, not just native-born Americans, but other American citizens, including people who are naturalized immigrants, um, but that those interests come first. They come before the interests of the would-be immigrants. Our foreign policy um, should not disregard the interests of other people, but again, it should first and foremost be directed toward the American interest. The second reason I think it's important to uh, advocate this kind of nationalism and defend it against other kinds is that we have to sift uh, when we see something that calls itself nationalism rising. Um, I think that if we reject the elements that I'm saying are defensible um, because there are other elements of it that are objectionable, um, we are likely to be less persuasive. Um, so I think it is important to say that versions of nationalism that uh, purport to place some Americans as real Americans and everybody else as a fake American should be rejected. It should be rejected partly and importantly because it's not in the national interest, because it is a fake nationalism um, in that way. Um, but I think that if people are told that uh, either you embrace that kind of view or you have to reject the idea of the national interest, you have to reject the idea of national cohesion, et cetera, um, then not as many people will reject that view as should. Uh, and with those sort of notes toward a definition of nationalism, I will close. Thank you very much. Okay, okay. Um, before I ask a question, maybe I'll just give you guys an opportunity. If there's anything, Sam, that you know, Ramesh just said that you, re that you really feel an urge to qualify. If not, I'll, I'll give you guys a question straight away. Well, um, not sure that it's a, a qualification, but I'll, I'll pose a question to which Ramesh, Ramesh can respond or not, um, which is that in his references to national solidarity, interest, and cohesion, um, he hasn't explained how we know who's, who's in the nation. Mm -hmm which seems to me the really fundamental question. Um, if 
the defense of these things is merely dependent on legal status, on having become a citizen, then I think we, we probably agree, but that's very different to nationalism as it has been understood almost everywhere else and at almost every other time. If there are other qualifications, other criteria beyond citizenship, um, then we should talk about what those might be. So um, when you were laying out your three criteria for nationalism, I think I agreed with two and a half of them uh, and would have endorsed them. Um, the key difference being that second element where you said that it has a kind of objective definition, um, shared race, shared religion, shared language, so forth. I would say that uh, my definition of nationalism is a little bit more subjective than that. It is a kind of shared sense of belonging that's important. That is often, and in, in, in the, it is often attached to common ethnic heritage or language or religion, uh, and the percentage, let's say, varies from place to place. Um, but, for example, when I say that we need an immigration policy and a practice of immigration that emphasizes assimilation to the American nation, what I mean is that I want the newcomers to see themselves and be seen by others as full participants in American culture, the American economy, the American polity, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't, I think that that is not a, a banality, right? I mean, that, that, for example, it does have implications for immigration policy because perhaps our absorptive capacity um, is not unlimited um, in the way that a purely ideological understanding of American na nationhood might lead you to believe that it is. Um, but uh, so I wouldn't say, so it's not exactly legal. It's, it's a cultural understanding that is pretty uh, that is pretty close to the legal one. Um, and I'll just leave it at that for yeah, now. Yeah, great, thanks. I was going to ask, a, a, I think, well, probably what was a version of that kind of question, which was to what extent we were discussing nation statism or something, you know, as opposed to nationalism. But we'll leave that aside for now. Maybe somebody else can pick it up. Let me ask you a totally different question. And Sam, um, this may not be directly to you, although you've hung out with enough Catholics to, you know, have some Catholicism rub off on you. Uh, since we're a largely Catholic audience, and given, Sam, that your history of sort of how nationalism emerge, re-emerges, right, is very similar, I think, to Yoram's, Yoram Hazoni's in his book, The Virtue of Nationalism, this no notion of the Hebrew, the re-emergence of the Hebrew Bible, the Reformation, and then I think the third was maybe technology, like certain kinds of technological developments, all seem to make the Catholic Church, at the minimum, on the sideline in this re-emergence, and arguably even, as I think Yoram is rel relatively clear, uh, an obstacle to the reemergence of nationalism and maybe even almost the villain in the story. Why, wh Ramesh, why, why are Catholics being drawn to something that arguably, as presented by at least a few people, has uh, either marginalizes or sidelines Catholicism or seems to, to view Catholicism as an antagonistic to itself, right? In other words, is, isn't arguably nationalism uh, a, a non-Catholic thing? And to what, you know, why are Catholics finding themselves drawn? Do you have any sense of what's going on there? Well, so nationalism can be a non-Catholic thing and okay. an anti-Catholic thing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm tempted to say that, um, that rejecting 
um, nationalism because it can lead to you know chauvinism or collectivism, et cetera. It's it's like um, rejecting sexual love because it can lead to adultery, right? I mean, it is a, there's a kind of an element of a natural human passion there that can have better and worse expressions, yeah. uh, and I think that um, for a Catholic, the nation um, can't be your ultimate allegiance, uh, and you know at the end of the I mean, obviously one sort of wishes and should work very hard to keep these things. Um, from being in stark conflict, but at the end of the day, if one had to choose, I mean, you have to choose God. Uh, but um, uh, I don't believe in a kind of totalizing version of nationalism um, that would really put American Catholics to that test. Let me put a little bit, like a little bit more pointed. So you're right. So choose God or the United States. Right? The Catholic has to, you know, choose God. Apparently. Um, but, is this but, up for debate? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, depends, I guess. Um, but what could there be a competitive political allegiance from a Catholic perspective? As we both know, right? There's there's stuff in the tradition, again, some of yeah. which do your own points to that suggests something about Catholicism is not comfortable with a kind of settled political allegiance, even even aside from whether it competes with God's allegiance, but it competes to some extent, or it becomes closed, right? Closed, not open to either what's below it, right? As competitive, you know, political allegiances, like Virginia might have been at one point in our country, or being from County Clare might be, you know, for somebody from Ireland or whatever, um, or something above it, another political good, right? That, you know, we as th those of us who are in the Americas, right, all have a stake in certain kinds of things happening in the Americas, right? So. There may be something, a kind of openness, even politically, in Catholicism that's different from at least some variations of nationalism, which seem to make the nation a kind of settled point of political mm -hmm. allegiance. Does that seem so, fair? So, I mean, if you think of the nation as one of the, the concentric circles uh, in which we're embedded and to which we owe loyalty, um, I think it becomes easier to, to see these things. I mean, we owe loyalty to our family as well, but, you know, there is such a thing as amoral familism, uh, and if you, if you place the family above the demands of the moral law, you're in the mob, right? Uh, and that's not the, the, you know, but again, we wouldn't sort of reject the idea of loyalty to your family for that reason. I just think that there's a, te there's a, there is a tension that is part of the human condition that just has to be lived with and navigated, you know? It's not, you, you right. just, you can't sort of deduce a, a permanent answer um, okay. to that kind of thing. Okay, I'm, I'm going to count that as one question. I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, second question since nobody's mentioned Trump yet. Um, and you both thought, you both write for national media. He, he uh, haunted my remarks. And you, uh, he haunted them, okay. Yeah. To what, ex what like this, this question is sort of driving towards what comes next, you know, if you have any sense of what, what comes next. To what extent is, this a, is Trump a phenomenon of the emergence of nationalism, or is nationalism, you know, an emergence, excuse me, a phenomenon of the emergence of Trump? So, so I have, have thoughts any? on that, but I feel like I've been yeah, monopolizing um, the. Thank you both. Yeah. Well, I, I think they're they're parallel and overlapping responses to similar problems, um, and as I mentioned very briefly uh, in my in my remarks, I think there are legitimate grievances, economic, 
political, social, and cultural that have encouraged uh, not only Trump in the United States, but other nationalist and populist movements throughout uh, the the, West, the Western world. Um, what happens after Trump, the man, is no longer on the stage? Who, who can say? I mean, this this week alone has demonstrated that predictions um, are are uh, made to be foiled. So I, I have no I have no idea. Um, it's clear that there was a segment of the political market that was underserved by the institutional and ideological options that seemed to be available five or ten years ago. Um, and that segment of the market is not going to go away. So I, I think in so that... in other words, this has legs. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that there is a sort of latent national majority waiting to express itself. Um, but I, I do think that um, at least in the near-term future, um, a kind of nationalist formation is going to be part of American political and intellectual life. And I think that's probably true in, in much of Europe, um, although I know, I know less about those countries. So I would say that nationalism has always been a component of American conservatism and has been stronger at those moments that conservatism in America has been politically successful. Um, so the 1950s, the 1980s, uh, for example, Morning in America, uh, that was, uh, in among other things, an assertion of national pride after a period of national self-doubt in the late 1970s. Um, one of the reasons I think that Trump was successful in the Republican primaries was that he was more successful in tapping in to those nationalist sentiments um, than the sort of circa 2015 conservatism had been. Um, there'd always, there's always been a strong nationalist streak in American conservatives, you know, go back to the Bricker Amendment in the 50s, we're going to defend our sovereignty against the UN, um, and in the 80s, frankly, with uh, the, the Law of the Sea Treaty we see with Reagan and other, other things that he's doing. Um, but I think that economic conservatism and religious conservatism can sometimes um, scant uh, the importance of national solidarity in different ways, and that conservatism had lost sight of, of the idea that the country is a home, uh, not just a place to do business, uh, not even just a place to raise your family, um, and that it was, again, as I said, an element in Trump's success. Uh, what, where we go from here? Well, look, I mean, you know, does certainly there are a lot of people who think that Trump is going to somehow, after four or eight years, or go down in flames and sort of discredit everything that he's touched. I suppose that is possible. But my suspicion would be that you will have a right that is maybe nationalist in a different way than Trump in some respects, but is, uh, is more recognizably nationalist than the Republican Party of 2014-2015. I would just add to that um, that because I agree that nationalism has been a consistent element of conservative and Republican po politics, um, at least since World War II, it's also been an element when those politics have failed um, in, in the Nixon administration. And I would argue in the first George W. Bush administration, um, be, which has been sort of written out of 
our memory. So everybody uh, quotes the second inaugural address uh, with the suggestion that the the disaster of the Iraq war was inspired by these sort of Wilsonian ideas of establishing international justice without regard to boundaries. That was not what was happening in 2001, 2002, and 2003. Um, And Ramesh mentions this this idea um, that uh, a nation is, is home and that Republicans and conservatives had forgotten about that. But it was in precisely, precisely this, this period that the term homeland was introduced into American discourse, um, where it had really not appeared before. So the successes have to be balanced against the failures, um, and I think nationalism is present in both. Well, it was very crafty, actually, because we introduced Homeland in the context of a new government bureaucracy that most people dislike. So it was, it was a subversive uh, introduction of the German uh, into American politics. All right, great. Let's open this up. Uh, I, I see a question right up front. Thank you. This is, was a wonderful opening exchange of ideas. I'm wondering if there's not a third way with regard to defining nationalism that would center on our Constitution that, you know, our nation is our constitution. We happen to have a written one. The British have an unwritten one. Uh, Citizenship reflects acceptance of our constitution. And that, in our case, our constitution reflects values like freedom of expression, liberty, et cetera. Um, Is is that a metric we could use that would certainly uh, make us make the definition less one conducive to being characterized as vicious and vulgar and uh, et cetera, um, and would not so much make patriotism kind of seem like a, a wicked thing, but that, that it's just those, those values that, the, that are written in our Constitution, uh, in our case, which is the one I would speak to, are what comprise our nation and therefore the derivative word nationalism. So I think the Constitution, the Declaration, the Gettysburg Address, all of those are part of American nationalism, but they're too abstract to be the whole of American nationalism, that, that nationalism is, a, is an attachment to a particular kind of cultural inheritance that includes those things. Um, and one can, you know, look, I, I think the logic of the Constitution starts faltering around Amendment 16. Um, I don't think that makes me less American. Um, uh, so I just think it's, you know, again, it's, we've got more ideological content than a lot of other nationalisms, um, and I think that the sort of the principles that we're talking about are true principles, um, but I just, I just don't think they're the whole game. Yeah, you seem to focus mostly on the U.S., and I'm thinking... Well, it's a very nationalist thing. <laughs> well, no, because I, mean, I was thinking of other countries, because the U.S. is different, because unless you're an American Indian, your ancestors came from somewhere else. But it seems that there's certain countries that get criticized if they want to remain their countries. And I'm talking about Europe, primarily Western Europe. Um, But, you know, you look at a country like Japan, who has almost no immigration, and they're cohesive, and it's also the safest country, I believe, in the world. Tokyo was just voted as their safest city. And and then every time I I open up the media and there's an article about Israel, it's always referred to as the Jewish state, but then everyone loses their minds if Viktor Orban wants Hungary to remain Hungarian. And I'd like someone to explain why there's this disconnect, why the rules apply to some but not to others. Sure. 
I mean, I think that in in that case, and these are all sort of interlocked, um, it's really the legacy of the Second World War um, and the feeling among many Europeans, including many of the architects of what has become the European Union, that the source of that war was an excess of um, nationalist sentiment. Um, and one way of dealing with that is to say, well, we're, we're not going to have fully autonomous nation states anymore. Um, they will retain some degree of cultural independence, they will retain their, their language, um, but we are going to try to remove the hard borders and sources of military rivalry between them. And that, frankly, was not a crazy thing to do. Um, the, the history of nationalism in Europe between about 1870 and 1945 is not a very happy history. Um, and well, the European Union, I think, is very badly constructed, and I'm, I'm sympathetic um, to the arguments of many European critics of, of the EU. Its accomplishments and, I think, good motives have to be recognized as well. The tension with the state of Israel is that many Jews drew the opposite conclusion from the Second World War. Not that national boundaries have to be eroded and cooperation between peoples should be promoted, but that what you really need is your own nation state in order to defend your own people from their enemies. And again, reflecting on um, the same history from a different perspective, that is not a crazy thing to think. Um, so in, in the tension between um, the EU and Israel, and I'm leaving out Japan, um, I know, I, I think these are two different interpretations of the same set of events from different perspectives. So I'm addressing this uh, to Ramesh. Um, so you mentioned that American nationalism isn't merely the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address. Um, what what is it? Because it's not it's not race, it's not religion. Uh, it seems like what makes America great is that it's all it's all those things. You can be this. And it's the diversity of the races, of the religions, of the ideologies. Mm -hmm. What else holds us together other than these beliefs that we should all be able to have freedom of expression or religion? Thank you. Well, it's also um, it's Babe Ruth, it's hot dogs, it's Prince. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, an entire culture that is distinct from other cultures, although it is better able to absorb elements of other cultures than most countries are. I just think um, most people, you know, yeah, most soldiers who ha are fighting for the United States, you know, they share American political ideas, but they're, they're, they're fighting for their countrymen. Um, they're fighting for something they have a lived experience of. Uh, and not just for words on a page. Um, and again, you know, different different cultures can be more or less vicious, uh, and different nationalisms can be as well. Um, but uh, I, I just think that that there's a tendency among those of us who write and think a lot about political ideas to 
scant um, this sort of huge cultural element just because uh, it's not race and it's not um, uh, an idea and it's it's something that sort of in a way lives in the space in between. Oh, let me just add while the mic is coming to you. I do think it's important because nationalism has sometimes taken disreputable forms for people who call themselves nationalists to go out of their way to distinguish what they're for from those forms of nationalism. And, and that is, I think, one of the problems with uh, with Trumpian nationalism. Well, if I, if I may just yeah. add to that, um, and I should say that I, I quite enjoyed um, the feature in National Review recently, something like Things We Like About America, Things yeah. We Love About yeah. America, which was an attempt to sort of capture some of these less easily articulated um, sources of, of shared belonging. But one of the things that strikes me about many of the intellectuals who describe themselves as nationalists or, or um, dabble in nationalism is that they don't, they don't seem to like America very much. And uh, that's one of the things that makes me concerned. Um, if I were convinced that nationalism were, were rooted in a genuine attachment to and, and defense of, common culture, of a common culture, that would be a good thing. Um, but it is a source of some worry when one has the impression that the nationalists don't actually like the nation as it actually exists. I would, I would even go so far as to say that a real nationalist should maybe be more alert to the dangers of foreign interference in American elections <laughs> than some self-described nationalists have been. So. Thank you. So... I'm curious about the relationship between nationalism and education or civic virtue. I'm thinking about a 28-year-old Lincoln, you know, addressing the Lyceum, saying, you know, we need a political religion, you know, something reverence for the law, otherwise our nation will die by suicide. It seems that 21st century attempts to legislate that are things like Arizona making it, you know, uh, a law that to graduate high school you need to pass a citizenship test. So I'm curious, where you, where is your view on that? Is this... How do you view this? If nationalism is this subjective, have we seen, can you make it a concrete law that you can pass down or shared, um, um, you know, virtue or, or worship actions? Yep. So I'm I'm a skeptic about classroom civics education, which. Um, is maybe somewhat surprising since I do a lot of that for uh, a living. Um, but the, the, the truth is there is no evidence that at any time in the past Americans had more class, textbook civics knowledge than they do today. Um, people offer these anecdotal claims. I remember when everyone could recite the Gettysburg Address. Um, the evidence just, just doesn't support that. Um, Americans, as far as uh, systematic study can, can show, and those records go back only to about the 1930s, so the case may have been different before that, um, have never known much at all about our system of government. So, you know, to the, the Arizona proposal, sure, I think it can't do any, any harm, um, but I, I have very little confidence that forcing more students to sit through more classes is going to make any great difference to um, our, our civic culture. What I think we do need and what we've lost over 
the last several decades um, is out-of-classroom civic education. Um, the, the lifelong civic education and civic participation um, provided by organizations like political parties, not in their, in their current form um, as essentially fundraising and advertising platforms, um, but as uh, associations that reach down into um, local uh, life. Uh, labor unions are another historic forum for this. These are associations and organizations in which people participate throughout their lives that inculcate habits of citizenship, whether or not they can answer um, questions on on a test. So um, I, I'm interested in figuring out, and I don't have the answer, how we can promote that kind of civic practice as opposed to... Um, trying to require um, abstract civic knowledge. I mean, again, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's nice to know. Um, but I don't think it will make much difference. And I don't think there's been a lot of change in that respect um, in the last 75 or so years. So just to pick up on the first part of what you said, I, I prefer the Lincoln of the second inaugural address to the Lincoln of the Lyceum. Um, the uh, I'm, a, I'm a little suspicious of the idea of a kind of a civil religion or a patriotic religion because I think it probably does some damage to both religion and to patriotism. Um, whereas well, if you think about the, the mature Lincoln, shall we say, um, you know, Lincoln who's in the middle of an awesome nationalist struggle to preserve an indestructible union that has an ideological component that's dedicated to certain propositions, um, you know, he... He talks about the nation, I think, in the way that a Christian who's saying the Pledge of Allegiance should, right? That when we when we say that um, we're a nation under God, that shouldn't mean um, we are um, specially favored by God so much as it should mean that we're under God's judgment. So uh, I'm I'm from San Jose, California. It's what they call like a minority majority city, meaning that we're one of the few cities in the U.S. where uh, neither white Americans nor African Americans are the majority of the population. Uh, most of my friends growing up are the children of immigrants. Uh, two of my best friends uh, are the children of illegal immigrants who were given amnesty under Reagan. So my question is really, who is in the American nation? Who is not in the American nation? And how can a person join the American nation? And if I could add just one more, could you define groups of people living in the United States who are not part of the American nation. So um, San Jose sounds much like my household uh, in uh, in some of these respects. Um, I would say, let me just put it this way: it, it, th this country, like other countries, has the right to determine who is going to come here and on what terms. Um, you part of you know to sort of give an answer to sort of your question as it's drawn depends on what the what you mean by living here, right? Like if you're living here for two years, but you see yourself as transient, you're planning to go back somewhere, um, you're, you're picking up a paycheck or doing some particular project, you're going to school here, for example, but you're not sort of attached, you don't see yourself as an American, then I wouldn't think of you um, as an American. You can be somebody who does want that attachment and is coming here and is uh, an aspiring American and could be fully American and can have kids who are fully American depending on some policy choices that we make. One of the reasons why this issue about illegal immigration is so neuralgic 
is because there are some people who have been here illegally for a very long time and have put down roots here and have children who are American in multiple respects, American legally, American in their self-understanding. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think that that creates a complicated political problem um, that is not amenable to a hard and fast answer. Um, I suspect, you know, that there that that a wise immigration policy is going to include some uh, some deportation uh, and some deterrence for people who are coming here illegally or stay, coming here legally and then overstaying their visas, um, and some degree of just saying, "Look, we've got a fait accompli here, and you are you are Americans, and we're going to make you uh, into um, legal Americans." Yeah, um, so I think, as Ramesh suggested, our, our disagreement probably revolves around the, the second of the three assumptions that, that I suggested. Um, I, I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that you're an American because you want to be an American, and you see your future here and your children here, and you regard those among whom you live as as Fellow fellow citizens, and that's that's what makes you what makes you an American. Um, but that's not nationalism as it is understood historically or elsewhere. So, if all we're talking about is a kind of civic or constitutional patriotism um, backed by some degree of common culture, but not too much, because there are also uh, regional cultures, distinctive ethnic cultures, uh, and and so on that that may not be shared among all Americans, then that that's that's fine and and wonderful. Um, but I think that to call that nationalism is to stretch the definition um, in ways that obscure the challenges as well as the promise of our situation rather than clarifying them. I guess, let me just to, to come back at that, people use nationalism in all kinds of different ways. And um, given that, maybe we should construct a better version of it <laughs> and uh, you know I think that, uh, that the, the kind that I've talked about that you know it's sort of it is conceptually distinct from sort of let's say the bad kinds of nationalism and from just simple patriotism um, in ways that make the idea whatever we want to call it something that is is good and worth defending and uh, and nationalism is as good as any and we can maybe we should try to reclaim the term instead of instead of just condemning it um, I'm Filipino by birth, American immigrant by choice. I'm going to ask a family culture issue here since, uh, um, and I don't know, political, religious orientation, Catholic, conservative, Republican in that order. Okay, that said, um, my question is this, uh, especially since we're here in the Opus Day Information Center here. Uh, the um, what in terms of um, how do you think uh, social issues, family culture issues, uh, particularly the issue of uh, Christian marriages being as between one man and one woman since the time of Jesus Christ, how do you think that's going to play? Given that the world, if you look at the map on to you know where gay marriage is legal and where it is not. Uh, how do you think that 
is going to play in terms of the future, in terms of what defines uh, being an American or you know traditional American, where you, you know we we have the diversity, but what united us previously united us, you know the traditional American family, which seems to have worked since you know the founding of this nation. Well, I, would, I guess I'd say that a culture of marriage has been an important part of uh, American nationhood for a long time, and it's an embattled part now. Uh, and we'll, you know, it'll be better for us if we can if we can reinvigorate uh, a culture of marriage here. But I mean, you know, it's it is a little bit uh, orthogonal in the sense that you can be a nationalist and and not have uh, what I regard as a sound understanding of marriage, and you can't have a sound understanding of marriage without being a nationalist. I mean, you should one of the, you know there are people also who say. You know, nationalism should be the axis on which all of our politics turns, and I just I think it can't bear that much weight. So I live in Virginia, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Virginian. You kind of mentioned the concentric circles. Yeah. Is it kind of good or bad that we're losing our subnational identities? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's mixed. Um, you know, I think um, there there are goods that are served by having a a sense of of community and a sense of state, uh, all those these, these things can be stifling and narrow. Um, but I also think that there's there's something sort of inevitable about it, uh, um, and that sort of the United States is a a more kind of natural um, locus of loyalty these days than uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, is. Um, I'd say. U.S. has maybe a little bit more glorious a history uh, than uh, than Virginia does, much as I like living in Virginia. Yeah, I think it's a bad thing. And I think um, that one of the reasons that our politics has become so contentious is that our energy is focused not only on, on the national level, but increasingly on the White House alone. And that turns every election into a kind of existential referendum, which may be more than our institutions can bear. So it would be it would be very nice if there were some way to reawaken and cultivate um, the kinds of local affiliations and loyalties and practices that make the nation less abstract, mm-hmm. that ground it in some in some real experience. But that's that's a very difficult task. Although, and I'm sure you, would, you wouldn't deny, sometimes states can be oppressive. And in our history, we've needed a real strong exertion of national power. And this is, and, yeah. right, yes. And then this is, this is one of the great paradoxes mm-hmm. of, of American nationalism. So you each have just a couple of minutes to sort of sum up your view. Why don't we go with you first, Ramesh, and then Sam, you can finish this up, have the final word. Uh, then we'll be done and have a reception outside. So, um, you know, I think uh, people, uh, I think maybe it was Sam Huntington who defined conservatism as kind of a defense of embattled traditions and institutions. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of beast that, uh, that's very curious in that um, it, uh, it hibernates in summer and, uh, and only comes out in winter. Uh, and I think nationalism is um, 
a little bit similar, that, um, that a sort of a shared sense of nationhood doesn't have to be sort of articulated and defended um, when it can be simply taken for granted. Uh, but there are times when our sense of what holds us together um, has frayed. Uh, and at such times, you see a resurgence of a kind of self-consciously or explicitly nationalist sentiment. I do think we are in one of those times right now, um, and that the wisest course that we can take is not to simply try to beat it back or simply to ride it, but to try to, to channel it uh, and move it in a, in a constructive and morally sound direction. I think that why concluding thought is similar, although I'll put it a little bit differently, which is that the question of nationalism um, really has two dimensions and one's answer to the question of its virtue or, or viciousness may depend which of those dimensions we are talking about. And one is the dimension of the national against the global. And I think that it's on that dimension that most of the argument so far has occurred. Um, and in that sphere, um, nationalists have many good arguments, many, many which I, I share. But there's another dimension of the national versus the plural, or nationalism versus pluralism. And there, uh, I think there's more reason for caution. So I, I invite and, and welcome um, the, the efforts of any and all nationalists to, to demonstrate that this really isn't an effort to abolish or to overwhelm um, both America's traditions of pluralism and untraditional forms of pluralism that are nevertheless facts of our life. Um, but I'm, I'm still waiting um, for evidence of that effort. Fantastic. That was great. Uh, please join me in thanking our guests.